Catherine Druckmann. I'm talking to Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief, and Kyle Rankin, our super awesome technical editor. I'm sorry, I added that little bit to your title because I thought it was <laughs> well-deserved, especially with all those comments you're getting on your, your articles recently. <laughs> I guess we did geek battle ribbons. Those would be cool. Oh, those would be cool. Yeah, those would be cool. We could, that could be our contribution. We could have those, you know, uh, the, the new emojis are geek battle ribbons. You know, that's, um, you know, like, like, you know, fought, f- fought an asshole maintainer and won or something. I don't know. Just a whole bunch of shit. That you, you pin it. Yeah, you, I can pin it to my root superhero T-shirt that we. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pin mine to the I'm smarter than your T-shirt that I still probably have somewhere. Boy, uh, yeah. So, so Kyle, we were we were talking about um, some things you've, you've written about recently, and in particular, your thoughts on vendor lock-in. And and just just this December, you posted a couple articles. Um, one, interestingly enough, was about something we've talked about before, which is messaging in the current state, which is a bit maddening. Um, but the other one that actually was equally well received was about razor blades which i thought was brilliant frankly it was it was a perfect metaphor it's brilliant in its simplicity and i think it really resonated with people why are razor blades such a great great illustration of vendor lock-in problems yeah well i mean so one thing is the reason i'm doing i started that series of articles and i plan to continue it with some more examples is i i get the sense that today there's a lot greater tolerance for vendor lock-in than there was even a decade ago, much less two decades ago. And a lot of that is because of how far free software has gone, um, that it's it's ubiquitous to the point that everyone's started to take it for granted and, and is not experiencing some of the problems that they've experienced in the past with vendor lock-in. So as a result, a lot of people may not even recognize it when they see it, but we're starting to get back into that world where a lot of people don't even seem to really think it's a problem. I wanted to start some sort of series where I explained some of the issues that we're starting, that we're seeing, um, so that people could remind themselves of these problems, or if they have never experienced them before, sort of understand them for the first time. Um, and yeah, like razor blade. I mean, it's not a new thing. People have been trying to lock you in. Uh, vendors have been trying to lock people in forever. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of of a lot of classic shaving techniques anyway. Uh, so I, but it was funny because the inroad for me into getting into shaving with a safety razor really was the vendor locking component. That the way that that meshed with my, you know, free software sensibilities was the last sort of like the, the last nail in the coffin to get me to switch over from like a disposable, regular disposable razor. Because yeah, I mean, right now, if you go into a store and you decide you want to do a disposable razor, everyone has their little proprietary replacement head for it. And because it's proprietary, it's ridiculously expensive. I mean, I, it's been years since I bought one, so I have no idea, but I'm assuming it's, you know, last one, when I last looked, it was a couple of dollars per razor blade. It's even worse if they're women's razors. Oh yeah. Cause yeah, they have, yeah. do they add the pink, extra, like, <laughs> pink and then the, the rubber, like now they have like a rubber pad on one side and aloe strip on the other. Like there's a old onion article that made fun of this stuff, but then it, it all just essentially happened where, you know, now I think now the big thing is that they, the, the blades have a vibrating motor motor because you want you know, yes. raised blades to move next to your face. That seems like a good idea, I guess, to some people, 
Um, but yeah, it's sort of like in the reason in we all know the reason that they're doing this is not because everyone's demanding to have vibrating razor blades next to their face, but they're doing this because they need to have an upgrade. It's like it's all the classic software stuff with upgrade treadmills and vendor lock-in. So, you know, I hit this personally with the the old Gillette Mach 3 that, you know, it was the it was at the time it was this big geeky disposable razor that, you know, back on Slashdot, it seemed like everyone was talking about it and using it. And I started using it, and it was fine. It did it okay sh shave. But eventually, they decided, well, that's not good enough. You need to use a uh, – we were going to do an upgrade. And I figured, well, that's okay. I'm fine with mine. I would, I'll just go to my local you know, uh, warehouse store and buy a big box of the Mach 3s, which I normally did, even though they were pretty expensive. Um, and then eventually, at some point, came to where I couldn't do that anymore. The, that, that warehouse store stopped stocking the Mach 3s and they only stocked the new upgraded, I forget what they, I think they called it a Fusion or something. So it had an extra blade and an extra aloe strip or something. Um, and so I couldn't buy it anymore. And it was really frustrating because I now, I, I mean, you could still source the, 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 the replacement blades for the Mach 3 head, but they're now more expensive. I couldn't get them in bulk and they kept going up in price because you're a lot, because you had no choice. You, if you were shaving with that, you had to go with that choice or upgrade to a fusion and go with that, right? And, and nobody else is making compatible blades, are they? Is that a Gillette restriction? I wonder um, that it's not allowed. I, I'm, I, I'm wondering if it's, if it's like if it's like printer ink. And I know you can you can get aftermarket printer ink, and it's, it's printer ink is the same kind of thing, right? Everybody has their own ink, and there's an entire wall at Office Max, and it. Uh, um it's at staples that has nothing but all kinds of printer ink that that's more expensive than like fine perfume or you know 100 year old wine i mean it i mean it's priced accordingly right um it's consumed more slowly but but i don't think there's a similar thing with with razors i have exactly the same problem i think now they if you go to the drugstore for Gillette razors there's the, the three blade razors and the five blade razors or something and neither one of them are the ones that I used to have, which I think are the Mach 3 that you were talking about. Um, and the, new, the newer three blades don't match up with my razor handle. Um, but, yeah, anyway, it's, it's a similar model. Yeah, I think, there are, I think there are some third parties that, do, that try to do like an aftermarket reproduction. But that's also one of the reasons that, that the, the name brands end up swapping up their razor heads over time so right. that then all of the all of the third parties have to retool the process it's just like in the olden days when you'd have you know when you'd have samba figure out a new feature for microsoft file sharing right microsoft would change the spec you know change the spec just so just to break break compatibility with third parties um i mean it's just we do the same exact stuff in the software world um it's all the same sort of game that they're playing but yeah that was once I, once I hit that, I got really frustrated. And then I, I read this article that talked about how safety razors existed, number one, which I you know, didn't really pay much attention to it back in the day. And, and also sort of talked about how they all standardize on this one spec for razor blades. And as a result, they're ubiquitous and incredibly cheap. Right. And I was like, well, that's totally tied yeah, that, into my sensibilities. Right? That was the old two-sided uh, Gillette, right? It, it, it went into a T-shaped... Uh, um, razor handle and it had it was a it was a double-edged it was a double-edged razor basically that was that was the only one for a long time you could get it you could get replacements for lots of suppliers 
But I mean, this is, yeah. I'm giving away my age here because this is like in the 40s and 50s and into the early 60s. I don't think that even the double, the double-edged razors, the disposable or the regular ones came along until like the late 60s or 70s. Yeah, so I, yeah, so I, I discovered about the double-edged razor and then went down to my local antique store and found, found a little, found a, a, a razor for that could accept that and i just found a random I, I saw that it had two sides so that it could handle a double-edged blade but other than that i didn't have to look at name brand i didn't have to look at a compatibility list or something because it was mm-hmm. at an antique store so they wouldn't have had it anyway but i just went in and paid 15 dollars for this razor and and cleaned it up and then went down to a drugstore and bought a pack of generic double-edged razor blades and it just worked and that was the amazing part about it is i could just buy this random pack and of course it was at a local drugstore so it's more expensive now because supply and demand at that one store but it just worked and then down the road i liked that one razor but i heard that some other ones worked better and then i went to a different antique store and found a different razor that worked even better and put the same blades in and they worked and then long story short i just i was able to find online there's all of these different vendors that have different that stamp out these razor blades for in my case i'm getting them today for less than 10 cents a pop for a razor mm-hmm. blade and mm-hmm. i buy them in packs of 100 now you know i mean i can only imagine wow. buying a pack of 100 mach 3 blades but i buy a pack of 100 and i know that you know at my current rate of consumption that's a two-year supply for me if i oh, want to yeah. be you know generous and say i want to throw them away every week um, which I usually don't do. I usually they usually last a little bit longer. But if I want a, a fresh blade every single week, that's two year supply for you know ten dollars. It's ridiculous. But the reason it's that cheap is that there's this open market where anyone can produce a compatible razor blade. That if you have any kind of double edged razor from made in the 1940s to you can buy brand new ones made by you know current current manufacturers today, they, it all fits and they all can share the same blades. And that I mean it's it's way more consumer friendly. Because you don't have to, you don't have to worry whether it's going to be compatible. Um, but these other vendors try to lock you in, and, and it's the same. It's the same exact thing as in, as in the software world, um, where it creates an artificially bad experience for the benefit of the company who gets to, you know, force you to use them for things. Yeah, um, I, I was I was wondering, Kusi, I don't shave my head. I was thinking, I'm thinking, okay, a hundred a year, that's two a week, roughly. Um, so no, hundred for hundred for two years, so one a week. Hundred for two years, okay, one every two weeks, then roughly, I guess. Yeah. Last year, two weeks. I I don't have much of a beard, and I have, and I leave some hair on my face, so I don't, you know, shave that much. Um, but I think about the people who shave their whole heads. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do that? I don't know. You have pretty short hair. Uh, I, I use clippers for that right now you know maybe that'll change down the line <laughs> as, as as i get older yeah yeah i i have a i have a clipper um wall w-a-h-l the same one pretty much that a lot of the barbers use and it has some attachments on it there's probably no standard for this i go one two three and four so i go over my head with a two and then i do my beard with a one <laughs> that's the whole thing i haven't been to a barber in years you know that's one one grace of of losing your hair yeah, I just I put a one half attachment on and run until till there's no more hair to cut on my head. And that's been my <laughs> hairstyle since I was in at, at the end of high school. 
<laughs> one, one of my favorite onion headlines is male a study shows male hair loss seven times more painful than childbirth <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a, little, I'm a little jealous yeah. of your uh, of your routine here. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, oh, so, 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 but I'm interested, Kyle, in, in your your observations. You you talked about that in that talk uh, that we both did, um, you more competently than me at uh, Freenode last last fall, um, about this, about what what the sociology of this is uh, in the tech world, where. Where there's sort of a boiled frog thing going on, where we're we've we've sort of acquiesced to um, to, to to lock in, and so where both the makers of tech and and the users or customers of tech are kind of oblivious to what they're doing and to what what values they're sacrificing, in you know, in order to maintain either the lock in for its own sake or the convenience of just only caring about your own stuff. And making your own stuff, and and not caring whether or not it's compatible, and going to the trouble of that. And I'm, I'm wondering if you if you've observed much of the sociology of that. I know you I know you have, but I'd love to hear you talk more about it. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's exactly the boil the frog scenario. What happens is a, a a lot of the reason that people are so accepting of it now is that a lot of the lock in um, is so far gentler than it has been in the past because a lot uh. of these Companies haven't yet gotten enough market dominance to exert their leverage. I think be, because it's been so, it's it's been the slow ramp up of these these ideals again, where people are not bristling against it. And so, in a lot of cases, you know, you still have people saying, "Yeah, but it's just a better. I'm getting a better experience if I get all of my things from this one vendor, and it's all the same from everyone." There's still they ha- there's a sense that there's still competition, and so there's they're not getting a lot of the, the vendors not real really restricting them yet in the same kind of ways. Well, they're starting to, but people aren't really paying attention to it. You can see that if you go to any sort of cloud talk at any conference now, where there's just, there's an assumption that, well, yeah, you're, you're foolish now if you try to build an application that could run on multiple cloud platforms. It's a waste of your time because no one would ever switch vendors is the underlying assumption there, which then, you know, can you imagine or they say that it, it would be such a grand event that it's not worth it's not it's it would be so expensive to sw- switch cloud vendors that it's not worth it and so you should just build for one and be locked into them and you know right now that's to me that seems crazy but a lot of people are fully accepting of that because they're under this assumption that that their vendor will not abuse that position even though each of these vendors knows clear and well that you're total once you're locked in that they have you and Right now that they, they can um, take advantage of, uh, right now they can be competitive in price and everything else, but there's nothing down the road once more and more people are locked in. Once once the vendor wins this war, then there's not as much keeping them that way. So there's a, um, I, I'm trying to think of how to put this without naming names. Um, there's one big company not huge, huge, not one of the, the great name brands, but one of uh, a name brand you may know um, that offers its entire service on a cloud. They were on Rackspace. They moved from Rackspace to um, Amazon. The reason they did that was because they could get analytics at Amazon. They couldn't at Rackspace. And my understanding of it anyway is that the 
analytics they could get at Amazon were much more of what we might call privacy invasive than the ones at Rackspace. That Rackspace's, Rackspace just had a, it may just simply have been that they had a smaller portfolio of analytics that could be done on, on one's data on a given cloud. But what Amazon allowed was looking into the B2B clients. This is a B2B company I'm talking about. The B2B clients of that company, the customers of that company, who were using the company's cloud on Amazon, um, that it was possible to look into their activity very deeply and into their customers' activity at some depth as well. And it could be that in the course of that, Amazon um, was respectful of the anonymity, which is to say the namelessness of the of the client, of the customer's customer, or the customer's customer's customer. Um, but there's there's sort of another side to this, which is when you when you get into a kind of lock-in like that, where there's just a pile of services that are available on top of a given platform. That's not only another form of lock-in; it's almost kind of a a contained space where you you know you can do things that don't see the light of day to anybody else, <laughs> just to you. Um, and I think actually that's where Facebook has gotten into some trouble as well. They could they could do things with their B2B customers um, that, you know, that their B2C users never saw and that nobody else saw at all because it was all proprietary to that platform and going on within that platform. Well, yeah, I, there's, there's, yeah, there's something to be said if you have, if one particular provider has such dominance over so much of the stack that yeah. you can't that you can't even if you want to make a conscious decision not to use them you don't really have that option i mean this came up a number of years ago when people were concerned about um government invasion into email and they pointed out well yes i can not use i can decide not to use gmail because i want the email to be under my control however all of the people i email are yeah. all on gmail one way or the other so the half of all of my conversations are on those servers regardless so it's difficult yeah. to escape. Yeah, and and there's, uh, I mean, and and you have, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's a big one for me because um, at least several of the companies I deal with, where I've had email addresses, and I might say that in, I think this includes Linux Journal, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong about that, uh, Catherine, but um, use uh, Google's back end. Okay, they're. It's their own email, but there's a back end to it. Like in, in my case, Searles.com, um, you know, my email address is doc at Searles.com. I maintain a server. It's in Rackspace. Um, it's a legacy one. It goes all the way back. It's it's on an unsupported version of Red Hat right now, actually. That's aged out, but it seems to be still working, and I haven't had time to fix it. But the... But I mean, now now I'm using Rackspace itself as a as a way to manage my email. But when when problems occur, it's, it's sort of those are proprietary to the company providing the service and kind of further lock you into it because you do get service out of them. I mean, I if I have mail problems, I call up Rackspace. I don't know if I suppose people can call Google if Google has people there. Do they do they, Catherine? Do they have people you can call at Google? Actually, you know, I think they do. I, I fortunately, I've never, 
<laughs> well, I mean, you're competent, so you probably them. don't need to. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I don't know what would happen. Would I, I feel like I could just uh, say out loud in my own house, hey, Google, I need help. And oh, God, yeah. But no, I've never, I've never had the need. Well, well, and here's and here's the thing with email that this sort of illustrates another risk and danger with vendor lock-in that actually my pre note talk is sort of I sort of alluded to as some of the dangers in the future. But for example, right now, if you decided you wanted to change providers with email, you could because email on the internet all uses there's all agreed upon protocols that email uses to deliver email, and then that you can use with an email client of your choice to get that email. You know, you, right. you don't have to use the web client. Like if you're using Gmail, you don't have to use the web client. You can, they still support IMAP. Um, but, you know, back talking about old day vendor lock-in, um, when Microsoft Exchange was the dominant corporate email platform that everyone used, Linux users a long time ago would run into the issue where even though Microsoft Exchange uh, supported POP and IMAP, by default, they would turn it off. And so you, as a result, you were required to use Outlook as your client. You had to use a proprietary client because um, the server used the proprietary uh, service that you had to use to talk to the client, that the client had to use to talk to the server. So you always had, there's always the struggle with the Linux user inside of a big enterprise that was using Exchange to ask the IT team to please enable IMAP so that they could connect their, you know, Thunderbird or Evolution or whatever client that MUD, of course, is the best one. Yeah, MUD or um, Pine or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to connect to that, right? And they would sometimes have a struggle. But but here's the thing. So right now, uh, and, and we sort of won that battle. Although at one point it was it was questionable whether things like IMAP would necessarily win out, and it largely did just because of the dominance of Unix on the internet, instead of instead of Windows being sort of a dom the dominant server platform when those things are being decided. But so right now on email, because of all of that, right now you could transfer your, your email from Gmail to someone else and back and use the client of your choice. But a lot of the other, a lot of the things that now everyone's saying we need to replace email with, almost all of those, and this kind of ties in, wow, I somehow magically did a segue into my messaging article with this. So all of these things that um, we're talking about replacing email with, they all have both their, they have the same Microsoft model of having a proprietary client and a proprietary server and no way to choose between, right? And so you can't necessarily just move from one communications provider to another because both, both ends are proprietary. There's no open standard between them. They intentionally don't have an open standard. And so as a result, you have a phone open with five or six different messaging apps that you use to talk to different people at different times. So, so I, I have an idea for you, Kyle, which is um, start naming the different kinds of lock-in. I, 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 one that is in the vernacular already is a Roach Motel, which is basically that exchange model, uh, the exchange and Outlook model. And, and, and I've not used either of those personally, but I'm told, or I remember being told, that if you, on your Windows or Mac client anyway, that, that, that has Outlook, or whatever it's called in the Mac, I don't know what it, that is, but it's something like it. Um, it you can go in, but you can't come out again. In other words, if you all of your mail is in that proprietary standard format that Microsoft uses, that if 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 you move, say, from um, I don't know, Mbox, I'm trying to think of some some standard that allows you to bundle up all of your 
all of your mail and stick it somewhere else. Um, you can't do that I, I, on, on with with Outlook. But th there's probably a better example of that. But there are but there are these are the services where you go in, but you can't come out again. It's not just that you lose services when you go out, but that you've lost even the data or the data is put in a form that is impossible to pull apart again. I'm thinking like right now, for example, of um, that's a different one, but um, uh, you know, all of my, uh, I'm not trying to think of, oh yeah. So for example, old word processors that are no longer in service, you know, and you, you can look at the raw text somehow, you know, you can use the text editor and look at it, but it's a complete mess. You know, oh, there's some text in the middle of this, but the rest of it's all hash. Um, you know, where the where the file formats just, uh, you know, aren't compatible, but it's on purpose. And it, but but the, the whole idea is that you can get in, but you can't get out again. And I think I think actually the messaging platforms are kind of like that. They're really li uh, locked up. They're just you just have to have a bunch of different ones. And, you know, but, you know, you can't make them get along. It's a yeah, bit they, mad thing. <laughs> well, they, they intentionally do that because they realize how difficult, part of it's when you can't get out, you, you know, once you're in, you can't get out. But a lot of it is just increasing the amount of friction it would take to leave. And in the case of messaging apps, the friction is convincing every friend that you communicate with to also change the program. You know, for example, with email, if you decide, you know what, I don't like this particular email client, I heard this other one's better, you can switch the email client, change your settings, and start receiving your email using that new client. But in the case of messaging, you can't just say, well, all of my friends like this messaging app, but I don't, I think it sucks. So I'm going to switch mm. to a different one and still talk to them, right? You have to convince all of them to switch over to, uh, before you can choose, before you can change your client. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I've moved on and off of Thunderbird some number of times. Um, and uh, somebody told me it's actually good again. I'm not on it right now, but 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 you're right. That's exactly the kind of thing that you can do. You know, if you're if you if you truly care about the standards. Well, uh, and and we had we had open standards for messaging using Jabber a long time ago, and it was yeah. popular enough during that. There's this golden era where all of the new messaging programs that were coming out were using that in the back end, and so as a result, it was easy for. Uh, for a user to use a different client that supported the protocol and message people. And yeah. it, worked, it was great. And then everyone abandoned it because once they had a certain groundswell of support and users, they wanted to lock them in on the client side too. And they also found that if they didn't do that, then competitors could come in, also be compatible with, with Jabber and make it easy for you to move from one client to the other. Yeah, it, it, I, we were um, at Linux Journal, I mean, starting, I guess, in 99, 2000 in there. We were great big Jabber supporters. We were all over it and uh, worked closely with Jeremy Miller and, and his team there as they created the XMPP standard and were so encouraged that, I mean, Google supported it. Yeah, I think even Facebook supported it for a while. And then... And then they all blew it up. They all just jumped off of it, and it was the end of it. And I, I suppose it's still out there somewhere, but it's pretty, it's pretty depressing when the companies that ought to know better in some ways, you know, and don't have much to lose really, you know, from compatibility, you know, and, and they have their reasons, I suppose. Well, there are just features that aren't on there, you know. I mean, that happened with RSS, with um, 
with Adam, you know, uh, rather than support RSS, um, Google decided it would push Adam instead. But RSS ended up still winning because it, it it allowed podcasting to happen. It had like the one thing that allowed podcasting to happen, which Adam didn't. But that was kind of a lucky break. Uh, uh, but but still, people every day somebody saying RSS is dead when it's just one of the handiest things that was ever invented uh, and made blogging and podcasting happen. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of vested interest in in RSS being dead because you can't get the same kind of tracking analytics and, and right. marketing in someone's face over a small RSS feed, right? And so that's the reason everyone I think that was in ad tech wanted to kill it was because they weren't getting the same kind of metrics and control over the 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 viewers of the content. Right, and and the sellers of the metrics and control. Um, had no interest or even awareness of of what the what the advantages of something simple and straightforward like RSS were. Well, and going back to what you're talking about with Google, Google and other providers starting with these open standards and then abandoning abandoning them, there's this there's this common design pattern I see at a lot of large medium to large companies where they want to do a project, they start with they instead of doing it all from scratch, they do what's the smart thing and use free software for it. And it works great, and they get to a certain point, but there's it only takes them with their custom needs 90 to 95% of the way there. And the logical thing would be for them to, with their great resources and the fact that they are taking advantage of all of this work they didn't have to do, to use their own work to extend and add that extra 5 to 10% of effort, and then everyone, and then put and, and make it, and make it open. Yeah, and make, make it, it open, open and then everyone yeah. can take advantage of that. That's the whole idea behind all this. Yeah. Instead, what they do is they use it for a while, and then they say, well, there's this 5 or 10% that we can't add. So our developers just want to rewrite it all from scratch because it's harder to work on someone else's code than to do it all from scratch. And so then behind the scenes, everyone re rewrites everything from scratch, and then they publish some new thing. And of course, it's always proprietary. It's not, you know, they don't publish the source. Yeah, and they replace it with that. And, and there's something else that happens with that. You'll, there's sort of a, a similar history that a, a given design may have, which is we're going to do it in a completely proprietary lockdown space, and then we'll open source it later. We'll stick it on GitHub later. And then it doesn't happen because they're embarrassed by some of the code or they just don't, they're just not into that kind of culture. Um, you know, and, and it's, and, and so it, and so, you know, that, I can't count how many, oh, geez, companies I've known or clients even on my consulting practice. I, I've told, please, 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 please open this from the start. And they have all these reasons why they can't do it. And they always promise, oh, we're going to do it. It will be open source. I promise it will be open source. And it isn't. It never is. I, I mean, it, in some cases, I guess it has been. But but in too many cases, it, it, uh, it, it never is. Or what they do is they'll, I know in one case, some proprietary code was basically abandoned and then uh, picked up by a university and is being used by a university now. Uh, one knockoff of a proprietary, of proprietary code was actually Wor uh, WordPress, I believe. Uh, movable type had its own kind of half open proprietary code that WordPress basically knocked off and that's what ended up winning. So, Although I yeah, go ahead. Kyle, you mentioned you mentioned in your article about messaging um, that SMS messaging 
was the catalyst to you know change to you know this we were we were going in this really nice direction where we were able to communicate with everybody with jabber and and you know the client of your choice and then data enabled cell phones and sms messaging sort of completely changed the landscape so given where we are now you know how 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 long would it even take to shift people back in the other direction i mean assume i mean it's not it's not a technical problem right i mean there's technology available that that could bring us back together easily but what about the social issue of getting everybody you know to sort of change course again well and see that was that was the thing is that the technology when you're messaging your friends you're sending them text you might send them a picture or an emoji and that's pretty much it. I mean, sometimes different clients have other fancy features and they'll take a picture and put a cat face on it or whatever dumb thing they do. But really, honestly, the, the core features of messaging are have been the same for a couple of decades now. Uh, and, and even down to end-to-end encryption was solved, you know, over a decade ago. But the difference, so it's not a technical limitation that's causing this. What ended up happening is, you know, people had desktop messaging, then everyone got a phone. Well. When, when people started getting phones, for starters, they were dumb phones. Um, so they couldn't, you know, they didn't have applications, but what they did have was, was SMS. And so they could send messages. Well, you had this open standard where you didn't have to care about a client. All you needed was a cell phone. And if you knew the other person's phone number, you could send them a message and they could send you one back. You didn't have to say, okay, well, install this app first and tell me what your account is and I can connect. And so everyone in their pockets had this great ability to talk to whoever they wanted to without caring what phone they had and whether it was compatible or anything like that. They know if you had a cell phone, it supported SMS. Well, eventually we started having smartphones. And it what happened was we started, you know, SMSs cost money and people's plans, at least back then nowadays, for the most part, people don't care or don't get charged for it or it's unlimited. Um, but at that point it was expensive. And so you know, Apple is one of the pioneers in this space to say, well, what we're going to do is, you know, we control the OS and the hardware and and we can set the default messaging application. So what we'll do is we'll say, if you're, if two Apple customers send each other an SMS, um, they're using our application. So we can just send it over our data network if they have a data connection and not charge them. So they don't get, you know, they're not charged for SMS. And so that, that notion of saving the SMS fee um, Made made iMessage pretty popular among the people that had it, and then I think everyone else just sort of woke up to this possibility. Oh wait, you mean it really matters what the default SMS message is? Especially on, in in an Android, it spawned this huge war, where every single application to this day that can do messaging wants to be your default SMS messaging app. And the reason is is once they get you over there, then you you have this this duality, where I can message all of my friends for free. Um, over the messaging app. And then I can, if anyone who's in my buddy list isn't on my messaging app, I can send them an SMS, but they miss out on all these cool features like putting the cat face on my picture or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, so that launched into five messaging apps on everyone's phone because every single other app is, is fighting each other to be the default one. And as a result, they also all, because they know once you're using them, the barrier to get off of them is really high because you have to convince your friends. So all of them, you know, have no have no um, incentive to be compatible with each other. 
there's no incentive for you know Facebook Messenger to be compatible with Signal, to be compatible with um, WhatsApp, to be compatible with you know the seven different SMS apps that Google made. Um, I don't know which. I think is Allo still the new? I don't even know anymore. Um, but yeah, so so now we're in the situation where we have a bunch of proprietary apps again that we had this golden era where on the desktop you had this possibility of sending a Jabber message to whoever you wanted on whatever client they wanted to use and on the phone with SMS. But now in either the name of security or features, we're back to this lock-in where you can't, if you and your friends are, <clears throat> for instance, all using Signal, everyone in InfoSec, you know, I, on my Android phone, use Signal. Um, but if you wanted to not use Signal, and you wanted to use something else that was better, you would now have to convince all of your friends to ditch Signal and move on to something else. Yeah, and, and I've, I've actually seen where people will SMS each other and then say, okay, we're moving over to WeChat, or, you know, it's sort of like SMS starts as the sort of first handshake, and then you move to some other uh, proprietary one. And uh, I, it, I mean, it's I mean, it's beyond completely ridiculous, but, but the... Like our our millennial son, uh, we we have two generations of kids, one in their 40s and one who's 22. Um, the ones in their 40s, of course, use SMS, and that's like it. And um, but the but the 22 year old, oh my God, you know, on his Android phone, uh, he, he has like many chat systems. Um, that he's got one just for us, for his parents. Uh, He's got he's got different ones for all his friends and they all just sort of negotiate what they're going to be speaking on today. You know, it's and, and they consider them disposable, which is sort of interesting, too, that there's almost the assumption there that that whatever you're using is temporary. Um, and that's a, a mentality that even extends, say, to photography. The whole idea with photography is you you, you shoot a bunch of pictures, you show them to other people uh, and then you're done with them. You don't really care beyond that. The, the whole archival thing is sort of secondary if if that high in importance and and i wonder to what extent that sense of evanescence or disposability is part of why this problem exists like it's just not worth going to the trouble to make everything compatible if it's all going to be disposable anyway and you're making up and you're pursuing opportunities that are going to pay off in the next several quarters um and and not much beyond that I mean, what it what it allows for those of us who want to open this up is it gives us an opportunity. If if people don't aren't really don't have a lot of brand loyalty, as it, as it were, with these apps, it gives if someone jumps in with something that does attempt to be compatible and does protect their privacy and does and does all of those things, then they you know there's a good potential for people to move over to it. I mean, think about the bad user experience of having to remember which which app to use for which person. And think about mm -hmm. the opportunity. Imagine, let's just pretend for a minute that, that okay, you had five proprietary apps, but they were, is like, it was like email, where there's, they are still all using the same, the clients are still all communicating with the server using the same open protocol. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's assume we're in that world. If we were in that world today, then your phone could have a single all-in-one messaging app, and it doesn't matter who your friend, what, what your app your friend uses or your parents use or whatever, you just know I want to talk to my friend or my or my parent. And the application knows which app, which um, network they use or which client they use and can scale up or scale down the features. You know, if it doesn't support the cat face over your picture, then that's turned yeah. off. 
um, if it's if it supports in the end encryption, that's of course turned on and just automatically does it. So you don't even as a user, it's a way better user experience to say, I just want to send you a message and I, don't, I shouldn't have to care what app you're using to do it. And if in the I mean, computers are smart enough to figure that out. It's just they can't do it now because every all of the all of the protocols are now proprietary for messaging. Well, I, I can't I, wait for that world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think Apple's happen. messages tries to do that to some degree. It certainly does it with SMS, but um, but I'm not sure. I know there was, I'm trying to think of the name of it. There's an app that I used that when, well, at the Berkman Klein Center, when I was there like almost every day, they had Jabber internally. And the cool thing about Jabber was that if you want to set up like your own business uh, chat that's internal and it's just for the business itself and it's not for the rest of the world you can do it not hard to do um and and you just do it out of you know available parts using an available protocol but it's pretty straightforward um but i don't think they're doing that anymore <laughs> i don't know i haven't seen it in a while uh but there's this one app i think that was kind of like the uh, uh, swiss army knife of that um but even there i mean at this point i think the last time I saw numbers on it, the the Google Store, I mean the the Android, the Google's Android App Store and Apple's had like both of them like close to 200 different messaging apps, completely different messaging apps, which is amazing and and sad. <laughs> it's like uh, it's well, like. Well, well, think about yeah. all of the in engineering effort that's wasted to produce all of these things. I mean, everyone likes to point at, well, it's, you know, open source software. There's all, all of these different people creating competing desktop environments or whatever. What a waste of resources. Yet every single proprietary company is all reinventing the same exact wheel with proprietary code just so that they can lock you in. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, it, there needs to be some way for a whole marketplace to look at the non-recurring, you know, the, the, the percentage of recurring and non-recurring engineering costs, you know, so they can collectively hold down um, the NRE and make the most of what is recurring. And it would certainly help everybody and make for a bigger market um, and a lot less friction um, and a lot more success on the basis of pure merit and not just lock-in. Um, to prevail and we it'd be kind of a fun thing to for some economists to try and figure out but uh you know i mean in, internally you'll hear about holding down the nre on a, on a engineering project for example but not across many in different companies or inside different um systems i probably github ought to do that I should talk to nat freeman about that and say hey there's a, there's a research project for you here mm -hmm. Now, that'd be interesting. I mean, it's one thing if, if if it's free software and someone's reinventing the wheel in the sense that you at least know that they looked at the other things and decided for whatever reason not to extend what already existed. And in many cases, you see that people do just extend what already exists. And often you'll have cases where someone did a fork and then either that fork dominates because it was improved or everything gets merged back in and you're back to a single project, you know. But again, in the proprietary world, you don't really you don't really see that they, they may kill a project, of course. I mean, especially if they're Google, but you know, there's no, there's, there's not a lot of a sense of reuse. Yeah. Yeah. So Catherine, so where are we at with this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we're good. I think, I think we've covered everything. I think we've, um, 
Yeah. I mean, never cover everything. No, we, we haven't. I, you know, I haven't. Keep doing I haven't this. even gotten started on television. Oh man, or 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 coffee pods, but. <laughs> well, I mean, wait. So, so as a positive thing, in my next my next article about vendor lock-in, I'm going to give a positive example of how vendor lock-in was avoided in an industry for once, um, when it could have gone the other way. So. Oh, I look forward to oh that. good. That's a, a teaser. That's a great teaser. I, I want to hear that. You can tell us offline. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. On that note, thanks pretty... for listening. Don't forget to email <laughs> us and tell us that you and, are uh, Yeah, cue yeah. the music, pod, podcast at linuxjournal.com. Let us know that you're out there.